2: um
1: Hello, I'm Anoush Shikelian, and this week me, Patrick Maguire and Eleni Correa discuss Change UK, TIG, the independent group, yes, that is all one party, and the Brexit party ahead of the European elections and their candidates, and our reflections from our series On the Road ahead of the local elections. Then I'm joined by Helen Lewis to discuss fleabag, poshness, and whether the hot take cycle is drawing to an end. Hi, it's Anoush and I'm joined by Patrick and Eleni and we're here to talk about Change UK or TIG or whatever they're calling themselves these days. Patrick was actually there at their uh, the launch of their candidates for the European elections yesterday
2: in, in Bristol at a science museum called We the Curious, and there was certainly...
1: <laughs> we're curious. Patrick, tell us That's more.
2: What, Even even well, even Chris Leslie got up to the podium, and someone said, "Why Bristol?" and he just said, "We the curious," and there was no there was no actual explanation. Um, so. Yeah, uh, it was pretty strange spectacle, not least because, you know, seeing Gavin Esler and Rachel Johnson and apparently a member of an indie band from the 90s called Long Pigs was is also an MEP candidate for Change UK, TIG, the independent group. You know, it was a centrist dad's dream. Um, <laughs> but as you say, like, you know, more questions than answers. Number one, as Stephen Bush wrote in his uh, morning email, why did they... You know, collectively blow their load, as it were, with their big-name candidates all at once. You know, they they had teased us with, you know, the marmalade droppers of Stephen Dorrell and Neil Carmichael to uh, to former Tory MP Stephen Dorrell, a former health secretary, last week. But they're not massive names. And then yesterday they unveiled their entire slate of 70 people, which, if you you know, there were recognisable figures like the former Time Mouth. Councillor Francis Wheatman, who resigned from the mm-hmm. Labour Party, some barrister called Jessica Simore, who is big on Twitter. But, you know, unless you are on Twitter all the time, which regrettably I am, there are a few recognisable faces there. And they did, their one, they did their candidate launch all at once. They'll get the one burst of publicity from that. Whereas if they'd said, here are our candidates, includes Rachel Johnson, then hit us with Gavin Esler on Friday, they would have been guaranteed much more... Coverage and the other, the other big question was, what are they? What is their, what is their pitch? The one thing they were, you know, they make a virtue of internal dissent. They say, hey, you know, it's new. We're blue sky thinkers. We're just here to, you know, you know, very sort of Stuart Pearson from the thick of it territory. You know, we're here to disagree. We're here to chew stuff over. But you can't really make a virtue of ambiguity and uncertainty when you are trying to sell a product and it's clear they're, they they saying you know with the remain alliance you've got to vote for us for a people's vote but when you get that really long ballot paper ballot paper in the in the polling booth on may the 23rd there's only gonna be one party that will have stop brexit next to their names that's the lib dems who registered to run as the lib dems to stop brexit whereas you know you might be hovering with your pencil saying change uk the independent group it's like well who who are they? You know, they won't say the Remain Alliance. And, you know, Anasubu was we saying, you know, people will know what the Tiggers, Change UK, whatever whatever the hell it is, will be about. So, sort of, well, it's not immediately clear they will.
1: Yeah. Or change.org. Change.org, she as she's else. called yeah. it on
2: day one, yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't know how much of a problem you think this will be for them, Patrick, but Elena, you probably are the same as me if you were following it online rather than there. The thing that was coming out of it were these tweets saying, oh, the Brexit party have these, you know, have these candidates who are
0: ordinary people, you know, a small business owner. uh, um, Nurses. Yeah, nurses, former former... soldiers. yeah, That's the kind of people that people think, yeah, this is somebody who you don't normally see in politics. Yeah, exactly. Different. And those were the people who came out of their sort
1: of event, whereas Change UK did have those kind of people, do have those kind of people on their list, but they weren't the ones making the headlines. Instead, you have apparently establishment figures um, all sort of reeled out in a list.
2: Yeah, so I, I guess what, matter, what matters less than the identities of in, the individual candidates because it's a list system, and like for these insurgent parties, you know, most people who are anywhere below two or three on a European Parliament list have no, are essentially paper candidates. Mm-hmm. I guess what matters is the sort of candidates who will get you sustained media attention. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Brexit Party have Farage, they have Anne Whittacombe, who, you know, mm-hmm. is everyone will say, lol, Anne you know, she's been on Big Brother and and you know in the jungle, jungle? yeah she yeah, wasn't the jungle was, she yeah. wasn't the jungle mm. and on strictly she's, yeah. been, she's been like she's been she's been <laughs> everywhere but ultimately Anne widdicombe is a name that everybody knows she represents a certain certain type of traditional tory she's guaranteed she, you know she's a former tory minister you guarantee coverage there you know and andi artreese mog and this has mm. been dripped drip, drip throughout the week whereas you know if you just have esla rachel johnson and you wheel them out once okay this, the campaign hasn't properly started yet then it doesn't matter who else is on your list, because you might have, you know, really well meaning captains of industry from each area. Ultimately you're probably not going to make as much headway unless you you know, you've got Whitakam on the telly. Maybe, you know, Esler will be, you know, firing out some lit tweets as he does for most <laughs> of his time and, you know, he's a recognizable public figure. But you know, are they going to get the same same sustained level of media attention, especially in a crowded crowded Remain market, whereas Farage is the single torchbearer for Brexit. I don't, I don't
1: know. Because mm. even their biggest names aren't sort of provocateurs in the way that Anne Widdecombe and Nigel Farage, and also the UKIP now have these sort of, that odd YouTuber, alt-right figure. Song on Song a aka Carl,
2: Carl Benjamin. Benjamin
1: yeah. um, who's running in the South West and he sort of came up through the Gamergate row, which... If, if, if listeners aren't aware of it, they can Google, but, you know, maybe just save yourselves. Um, <laughs> but he, you know, he's another person who will probably get sustained headlines just because he, he, they have absolutely no filter. They'll just say whatever they want. consistently yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: But and any publicity is good publicity in this situation often because there'll be people who agree with them who will just vote for them or there'll just be people who go up there and just tick whoever they're heard of or, mm. you know, Brexit party, clear message there, you know, that, that Change UK doesn't have the same... Advantage.
2: The, the inter- well, exactly. And the interesting question from yesterday, obviously, they're calling themselves the Remain Alliance. They're incredibly averse to, you know, there's, there's been a story in the Daily Mail by Claire Ellicott today that says, you know, they're, they're pursuing the strategy David Owen wanted to pursue in the 80s rather than the Roy Jenkins strategy of alliance with the Liberals. They want to supplant. It's not a perfect comparison because David Owen wants to supplant Labour as a party of the left but they want to sort of muscle out the Lib Dems and they're being incredibly hostile towards the idea of cross-party cooperation this is something you've written about Eleni they seem to have you know moved back in the direction of cooperation but now they're
0: absolutely now they're
2: pushing back against it again
0: there were there was a a short period wasn't there, when in Westminster they were the Chuka and other leaders of independent group were standing side by side with senior liberal democrats caroline lucas and others and saying we're all the parties that want to remain and kind of seeming to put up a united front and now that seems to have changed once again and we've gone back to the sort of statements that where takes say well we are something new and fresh we're not like the lib dems Mm. the lib dems are tainted and that's Mm -hmm. what they were saying originally and i know that lots of lib dems are really frustrated by that actually
2: the question they they haven't yet answered there's a certain deg- there's a degree of presumptuousness about about their entire gambit which is we're the party of a people's vote okay well why aren't you, why are you the party of a people's vote rather than the Liberal Democrats who've existed in one form or another for 150 years why should voters in Scotland or Wales Vote for you as the party of Remain when they have nationalist parties who do that. And then the big thing nobody is talking about when they talk about Remain cooperation is the stance of the Labour Party. Because the Labour Party's candidates, Andrew Donis, Eloise Todd, who used to run or runs the second referendum campaign group Best for Britain. They're incredibly mm, uh, You know, absolutely. Sorry, pro-euro- pro-European for people who don't spend their entire <laughs> lives on Twitter. Uh, you know, Richard Corbett, the leader of Labour in the European Parliament, is a massive Remainer. You know, wants to call the whole thing off. So... And, you know, as we saw in 2017 and see whether Corbyn's, equivoc- you know, perceived equivocation on Brexit changes this, in a lot of cases Remainers will tick the Labour box. And if, you know, Jeremy Corbyn breaks the habit of lifetime and articulates a sort of Remain populism, you know, Remain and reform, or, you know, we, we're we still the party of a second referendum, then, you know, they could Labour could well hoover up a lot of Remain votes. And let's not forget they are still either a second, close second to the Brexit party or ahead of the Brexit party in most polls.
0: Mm. Absolutely. And you th- you'd think they might have thought of some other selling point which they would give to people as, this is why you should vote for us, rather than Labour or one of the other mm. main parties. And they haven't done that. It's, it's a little bit confused. So if, if you are the party of Remain, call yourself that. Call yourself the Remain Alliance openly. Just say, this is what we are, and then hope to make that your massive kind of selling point on the ballot paper. And what it seems... the case now is that eventually when other policies start mattering more after the european elections there's going to be a big problem for the independent group because they've not formed a group of people that agree on anything else other than the fact that they want to remain in the european union so what what other policies are they going to be putting forward mm. after? And in a way, that's that. the luxury
1: of Nigel Farage and his new party is that they're basically a pressure group, but, you know, on riding on the coattails of his reputation. Yeah, um, yeah. And so they've just got one thing, one focus. It's in the name of the party. It's on the ballot paper. And then they can implode or disappear or do whatever other parties they want to form <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. Their job is done. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, you, you do wonder whether it was too much, too young for TIG, who all resigned. Obviously, with the Labour members, ex-Labour members, rather, there was the anti-Semitism was also the trigger. But you do sort of wonder whether they, you know, obviously their hands were forced in registering as a political party by the European elections, but you do wonder whether this has sort of come too soon. Obviously, it was predicted this would be a massive boom for them because they were the party of a second referendum. But it's come sort of before they've embedded themselves in the public consciousness and it's also because their whole gambit is we want to stop brexit failing at this hurdle would will be such a punishing blow for them because if you are the party of remain and you can't succeed on in an election which is essentially for most voters considered a free hit mm. see the success of ukip in 2014 and you know and it's been you know been heralded by remain parties as a as a proxy second referendum then it doesn't look great.
0: Absolutely, and and if it ends up being that there's a lot of votes kind of collectively for the independent group, the Lib Dems, the Greens, Labour, even several pro-remain parties, if you've burned your bridges now and said we were trying to supplant the Lib Dems, we're trying to win over their activists or candidates. It's difficult then to go and say, well, you know, all together we've we've collectively won this many votes for our main parties, and we're going to work together now. And it, it
2: will massively weaken their hands in the discussions they will eventually have to have ahead of a, ahead of a general election with the Lib Dems, because as much as they talk a tough game about not cooperating, it's clear that even if they don't, they say they will. They're, they, they make a point saying that there'll be no backroom stitch ups. They will have to broker some sort of some sort of peace deal or non-aggression pact, informally locally with Lib Dems, to make sure they can, you know, survivors are going concern. And there's a danger if they fail badly in this election, then you know, their, their hand is weakened in those tours.
1: And we've all been out and about in various different constituencies ahead of the local elections, but I don't know if you've found this, but I've found people are really keen to tell you what they think of Brexit and what they want to vote for in the European elections, sometimes confusing the two. Have mm. you had that? Um, and I've had absolutely no... One, you know, I was in Maidenhead, which is Theresa May's sort of patch, and that's a Remain voting affluent area. Lots of people are angry that Theresa May is working with... Jeremy Corbyn or so, they see it, on the Brexit negotiations. And even if they sort of voted Remainer, just completely frustrated with the way that she's going about things. People will mention UKIP and the Brexit party to you, but no one's mentioning Change UK, TIG.
2: No, no, I was was in Mansfield last week in a very affluent suburb of Mansfield. And I was out on the doorstep with the uh, local Tories who are... You know, Mansfield, like many, many councils, is run by local independents so it's really interesting three-way fight between Mm -hmm. local independents who can hoover up discontent with national issues the Labour Party who obviously have a you know a long-standing hold on communities such as Mansfield which is waning and a group of sort of plucky insurgent Tories their problem is that you know they were like you know are we have such a strong you know proudly toting their leaflet talking about Relief schemes for the local A road and bin collections and all the stuff. Tories, the local Tories, want to you know let's abolish the precept for the directly elected mayor. The proper, you know, let's move, yeah. let's, let's move the council offices back into the town hall. That sort of that sort of stuff that you can really imagine in a conventional electoral cycle. People go, yeah, absolutely. It's the sort of the sort of sentiment with local issues that delivers local independence to power and you know can can pull them out of power and, uh, as the Mansfield Tories hope, but. The problem is they say, you know, trying to put on a brave face, but, you know, sort of how often do you get complaints about Brexit? And they're like, well, a lot of the time you do knock on the door, you say you're a Tory, and then you have an extended conversation about about Brexit before you then get on to local issues. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is a massive challenge for anyone who... Anyone, basically, if your leader is on the telly a lot, see Corbyn, see May, you will always be defined to a greater or lesser extent by your leader, mm-hmm. no matter what the actual election you are fighting is on.
1: Yeah, and and it is telling that people will admit that it comes up and will impact the local elections because there's such a refrain among, you know, whenever you're interviewing a candidate or or, you know, anyone in their local patch, they'll always be like, you know how many times I've heard the word Brexit over two years? Once. And you're yeah. like, I know that's not true. <laughs> but now, you know, people are openly admitting it. The, the head of Theresa May's, uh, you know, the Maidenhead Constituency Association, I interviewed him and he and he said, yeah, Brexit, you know, is absolutely going to affect the, the local elections because people are, you know, so fed up with the uncertainty. And, and he said, actually, in the shires, you know, there's a lot of, uh, it's unnerving that, Jeremy Corbyn has been sort of invited in Mm. into the negotiations. so if he's even he's saying it and he's loyal
2: I almost think it's sort of I remember when Theresa when I I wrote when Theresa May well when the Tories unveiled their party election broadcast for the locals which was all about bins and housing and potholes you know obviously you're not going to lean into the Brexit thing if you are Theresa May but it's not as if they have a watertight record on the stuff (laughs) they're running so it's almost like Okay, don't lean into Brexit, but also don't lean into bin collections, potholes. As you know, as you've written, like these are massive problems in Tory-run councils that are being hit by austerity, albeit not as hard as most Labour councils. But you know. These are things that people get really angry about. So yeah. they, they're not want. No one's going to want to endorse <laughs> the Tories' handling of of public services, are they? Yeah,
1: exactly. When you talk to people in in constituency Labour parties, they often say Brexit has been a gift for the Conservatives, which obviously no local Conservatives would say. But because it it sort of distracts from all of the other things that are going wrong in their constituencies that they're supposed to be they're supposed to be looking after. Mm. So on that depressing note, we should probably end our chat. But thank you. Pleasure.
3: Because politics makes me want to stick a fork in my eye, (laughs) let's talk about culture instead. So there was a bit of a brouhaha uh, over the weekend about a piece about Fleabag, which I really enjoyed and loved, saying, you know, but it's only for posh girls. And I just thought it was a really fascinating subject because it comes around again and again and again and again, this idea, particularly I think it happens to women that they're expected to sort of be representative of everybody and actually what is a general systemic problem about the fact that certain experiences are overrepresented certain types of people are overrepresented become sort of focused into onto one particular show I mean I don't know how you would rate yourself on the poshness scale I mean um, I'm, I'm I
1: expect I'm probably very high on the poshness scale. yeah <laughs> I mean I d- yeah in fact Phoebe Waller-Bridge went to a school near mine Right. Um, which is how I knew in the first instance that she was quite posh, which was why I was really waiting for this take. I just knew it was going to come out. So when I saw it over the bank holiday weekend, like the one time I looked at Twitter when I wasn't just lying in the sun, I saw that this this had finally emerged and it was like the feeling of the inevitable. And I saw that, that a lot of people were getting angry. I mean, why are we still having takes on Fleabag as well? I mean, it's over. <laughs> I mean I, th- I think you're allowed to I mean quite a
3: lot of people Yeah, you are, still are allowed to. Yeah. Talking about
1: The Godfather
3: and it's been yeah, 40 that's true. years. I
1: mean, I just thought it was yeah, sort of missed the moment slightly if you wanted to have a sort of blazing hot take opinion on it. But at the same time, I did think, you know what? Why not have this opinion on it? Well, everything else has been cycled through.
3: Maybe there was a piece about was how gonna say it. there was a piece on the Guardian a couple of months ago about Benedict Cumberbatch says herbal tea is not real tea, <laughs> and I was the point in which I was like, right, pack up the internet. Like <laughs> every opinion has now been possibly had. Let's not argue I agree about exactly. it. But um, okay, but what
1: <laughs> herbal tea is not real tea? I mean, it is. I mean, what else would you call it? Well, it's just sort of infusion. It's just dust, like, (laughs) with perfume on it. Okay, but tea tea (laughs) is also just dust. I mean, I don't... Yeah, that's true. Like,
3: burst your bubble on the concept of tea here, but it's all just shavings off the floor of the tea factory at some level. Anyway, Ellen Jones, who wrote this piece, is a a writer who I otherwise really like. And the thing that really fascinated me about when I clicked on the actual piece... Is that it was an apology all the way through. It kept going. Of course, it's a work of genius, but I'd like to see more people like me on screen. Mm. And all the way through, there was a real sense that this was not actually a particularly an opinion that this person really wanted to advance or felt the need. It was kind of like you were like a, it was sort of procedural, like it was an expected trot through. Like oh, we like you say it's inevitable. Like we have to have this take. And I think Vary McFarlane, the romantic novelist writer, I don't know what she would like to call them, she certainly would kill me if I called them chick novels, but romance novel also said, you know, like this, this doesn't happen about Patrick Melrose, which is another TV series that I think is equally brilliant. So mm-hmm. Edwards and novels about fearfully posh people. I mean literally a whole of episode three is set at a massive house party in a stately home. I mean it I mean it makes Fleabag look like, you know, I was gonna say some mothers do have them, but I don't know why that was my <laughs> reference point. But it didn't kind of get that. I think the problem is that and I think something that Catelyn Moran has written about a couple of times is because women's experiences are still underexplored, everyone that kind of makes it through is kind of expected to represent all women. It's like,
1: okay, she's got the woman slot, so like, what? how does this work for all women? I think that does happen in a way that men never get scrutinised, but I don't think this is what this piece is. This is not what this piece represents for Fleabag, because I think there genuinely wasn't that argument about the show, and it's been going on... I mean, when was the first series? Was it last year? Yeah. It's been loved and watched for quite a long time without anyone really picking apart sort of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's background or the lack of representation of certain types of people in the show. I think this piece was like a standalone, and people were really... Well... As far as the Twitter reaction that I scrolled through for about five minutes, I noticed with people were just not they, they would just cross that it even existed. And they were just sort of weary about the fact that this this inevitable take finally emerged. Whereas I think yeah. with Lena Dunham and Girls, for example, that, you know, that was the, the sort of narrative all the way through the program. As soon as it became a big thing, people were saying, you know, why aren't there any this type of character or... They were picking apart her background more. Yeah, I know there was like a Daily Mail piece about Phoebe Waller-Bridge's family tree <gasps> or something.
3: No, it was a piece about her yeah, stepmom. Yeah. Who? Sorry, I clearly I read this. I'm so base, <laughs> but um, who never mentions him? Often mentions her sister Isabel, but never mentions her. And met her dad while fencing at a private members' club. Which oh, I, wow, okay, okay. I
1: mean, quite, I mean, you want to know that information, don't you? Quite, but um, I feel like that didn't feed into the sort of pop cultural discourse about fleabag at all. Right, but I also think that's because Phoebe Waller-Bridge is
3: frankly a lot more media savvy than Lena Dunham was, right? And, she, and actually she has really left the work to stand on its own and mm. not offered a commentary on it all the time. Like, she's never talked about whether or not any of it's based on her, her own stepmother, right? Like, Which I think is the kind of thing that artists have probably had to learn a huge amount that actually, otherwise if you're particularly if you're a woman, it will get past your experience of your life. Whereas Lena Dunham seems to have some kind of unfortunate you know, just ability, she'll get like 90% of her way through an interview and then she'll just say something like, I wish I had a
1: slave. And you just go, what, what, yeah. what, <laughs> <He was laughs> really, so She was doing so well. Yeah, she's really gaff prone. Like, she's the extreme opposite of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who doesn't even have a Twitter account or anything. She makes sure not to make herself vulnerable, I think.
3: Right, but I think that's what I thought was interesting about all of this, is not the, any of the particulars of it, but the kind of, the whole cycle of it. And actually, to me, the thing that had changed was that fact that actually there's now a kind of pushback on the, the higher standards that I feel are applied to women creators which is something that I, what I felt like I wanted to say a lot during Dunham era but because it was so wrapped up in discussions of, of race in America particularly it felt like a really awkward and imp- not, not the time to kind of make that point the bit that got to me was when she got a load of money to write her sort of memoir slash life advice thing. And at about exactly the same time, Aziz Ansari, the comedian, mm. who also had a TV series on Netflix recently that's pretty much sort of thinly based autobiography or heavily autobiographical, got back exactly the same amount of money. I read both the books. They were both fine. There was a very odd bit in the middle of Leonard Dunn's where she went on, she just had 12 pages about her diet and then there was a whole, whole sections in Aziz Ansari's Modern Guide to Dating, which are just all about how much he loves ramen.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've read his one. I haven't read the Lennon Dunham one. But it
3: was just really fascinating that he just didn't get any, you know, as a, as a non-white man, there was a kind of acceptance that actually, good luck to him, he's got 3.3 million or whatever it was out for this, but, but as a rich white woman, it was like, oh, you know,
1: t- typical privileged bitch getting another thing for free. Yeah? yeah, and actually, the New Yorks that they represent and the sort of millennial culture that they represent is quite similar. Yeah. Like, I enjoyed Master of None for the same reason that I enjoyed Girls because I was like oh it's quite fun watching these sort of stupid young relatively wealthy people do like trivial things I mean that's a genre isn't it oh yeah, no, it's, a, yeah. A, it's a lively genre <laughs> uh, but I mean it's only the same genre really that
3: Friends was Mm. And yeah. certainly in its early series, yeah, right? They're all living in a rent-controlled apartment and they seem to have breakfast with each other. I've been re-watching Friends and this is one of the things, I'm like, who are these people that
1: they don't... They have so much time for breakfast in
3: that show. And What they... time are they getting up? No, people are coming around, presumably to Monica's apartment, like 6am for a <laughs> leisurely Monica. breakfast. I'm just like, oh guys <laughs> And then there's a whole bit about how, like, I'm just trying to think about the fact she's a chef and she's like, I'm free Tuesday night. And I'm like what kind of cockamamie restaurant is this you're running, Monica, that only serves lunch? Anyway, that's my, my friend's beef. But I felt, in a way, I didn't like that, obviously, because it's horrible to see someone getting absolutely slated for an article because part of you thinks, I remember when that's happened to me, it's quite unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. But I did think the general tendency of pushback of like, not everything has to be about everything is a much healthier place to have got to culturally.
1: Yeah, I thought the pushback showed that that kind of culture has changed slightly.
3: But don't, do you not worry that there's a kind of... I always think there's a kind of problem of, of wokeonomics, which is just that presumably that push and then pull is probably really good for attention, really good for clicks, really good for... You know, it's it, it feels like something that people would do, particularly when you're an advertiser-funded model, right? That it just... Heat is really appealing in those situations.
1: Yeah, I think that's changing, though, too. I mean, you even noticed it on the... You know, I've, I've worked for now for nearly five years on the New Statesman website. And I think that the kind of... You know, what people might dismiss as like woke route one hot takes, they don't do as well anymore. You know, there's not as much of a demand for them, I don't think. Maybe because of the Facebook algorithm changing quite recently. But I don't think you get the sort of roar of tra- traffic and sort of Facebook performative outrage that would help you sort of get a piece to the to the top of the most read that, that you used to get. I think that's really true, and I'm, but I, and myth busting does much better now. Like people want to want to be told something that that, that perhaps they didn't know about some, a, a news story. So sort of getting behind the headline and being like, why is everyone wrong about this, rather than how dare this thing happen because of X, X, and X. Yes, I guess you're right. It is trend based,
3: and there was a time when the curiosity gap, as they used to call it, was really mm. great in headlines. It was like you'll never believe what X is, and after a while, you just kind of go, oh look, it's a man playing a piano with the stumps of his hands rather than his fingers and and then and you go well mm, mm, all right but okay or like oh it is a cat skateboarding like the curiosity got sort of failed because people realized that actually it was just a, a trick that was often letting them down yeah and you're right the new kind of hot thing is everything you think you know about jeremy corbyn's brexit policy is wrong yeah yeah here's what jeremy corbyn's <laughs> real brexit policy that's is. what
1: passes and it's... for clickbait yeah. for us
3: yeah. <laughs> juicy <laughs> yeah it's so shameful um yeah I guess it's about it's all about I think online consumption is so much about defining yourself and your identity and the new identity is to be too cool for the for the kind of the outrage bait right? I think
1: that's definitely true I think outrage bait is out and sort of big sort of ponderous long reads about the you know this one very minor aspect of fleabag is in the definitive essay rather than the you know blazing hot take
3: yeah, I guess that's the point, isn't it? There's a better badge to pin to yourself now, is that I I am a consumer of 5,000 words about the significance of the bus stop in Fleabag. Yeah, no, exactly. I am not. I'm not the kind of person who's no, sort of unsophisticated who would get sort of angry about this. Like, I'm... Yeah, I wonder what the next thing will be. Well, that's exciting. I think it will be tinnies. Pre-mixed tinnies. Do you know what? I... <laughs> That was another story where I was just like I can say, well, if you worked in internet journalism for too long you're like oh the outrage cycle it begins yeah. and I felt like I was I was sort of sipping on it very much like an Emma, MS Mahito in a cat. <laughs>
1: yeah but it wasn't an out again the Literally, outrage cycle didn't happen for
3: that No one outraged it by it happen.
1: It didn't happen and trust me there will be an article about the cultural connotations of the MS Pre mixed tinny, and that will be a big three thousand word essay. And what I find is really it's fantastic. Which i have not, you know, I would read that.
3: Yeah, but what happens really aren't fascinatingly in cases like that is people write articles arguing against articles that didn't happen. Yeah. So they'll be the like man. the outrage over Diane Abbott's mojito shows us we need to grow up about how we treat politicians. And
1: you're like There's no, there was no outrage mm. apart from maybe like one person.
3: The, even the Sun story that originated it was written in a kind of like ooh look at her like on a, on a train. I mean, it wasn't kind of like there was like one retired policeman quoted in it right or something like that yeah and i saw that i was watching the beyonce homecoming on netflix at the weekend and i remember that spate of articles about the you know why isn't beyonce's feminism being acknowledged pete like back in like sort of 2013 14 when mm. lemonade came out and you were like well, everyone i thought every i mean I, I just didn't i just didn't see the articles that everyone was complaining about and maybe they did the exist straw take. but it's the straw take or it's the kind of the problem is that because everyone has their own internet yeah and actually, it's really impossible to see what everybody else is seeing. So maybe other people are being bombarded with, like, Beyonce's not a real feminist. It's actually Sheryl Sandberg's Queen of the Feminists. You know what I mean? Maybe. Or
1: maybe, you know, because you can find any opinion on Twitter. You know, if you want to write that kind of piece, then you can embed some tweets by angry men with three followers and then you've got sort of the, the I, wrong take to take yeah. down.
3: Yeah, I love it when the Daily Mail do one of those and they, you can see that they've searched for Doctor Who woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I it's like fans' outrage ads, and yeah, and you're right. You can any opinion. There's no opinion so absurd that is not held by 15 people on yeah. Twitter. Well, that's good. Maybe with it, we sold the outrage cycle. Was everyone's just simply got bored? So now they have to invent things. Maybe everyone was just sunbathing, and it will go back to normal. Hey, maybe global warming is good. <laughs> <laughs> on there's a take. <laughs> can someone please write an outrage take about that? <laughs>
1: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikalian and Helen Lewis, Patrick Maguire and Eleni Correa. We are produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil With The Devil by The Underscore Orchestra.